Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, January 12th. A quick reminder to begin today's show. I am without Super Producer Daniel Westoff as he is on a well-deserved vacation. That said, for the remainder of the week, there will be no intro nor outro music, nor will there be any of the typical sound effects we like to employ to keep you listeners entertained as well as polish up each of these episodes with. Let me also just add he He's been gone for less than 24 hours, yet my appreciation, my fondness for super producer Daniel Westhoff grows with every passing second of his absence. Perhaps you listeners will feel the same way following him being gone for the remainder of the week. That said, he may be on vacation. The pro tennis world certainly is not. It is an action pack week number two heading into the second championship weekend of this 2023 season of course we've got four tour level events we've been monitoring all week long here on the mini break that's what i plan on doing again today here on this show we've got updates for you on the action in adelaide in auckland in hobart of course we also know the 32 players who have now qualified for the australian open singles draw i want to go through who the most notable players through those 16 on the men's and women's side are. I want to talk about who feels most dangerous entering the main draw of play, which of course begins early next week. I also would point out that if you're looking for more Australian Open preview coverage, all you got to do, hop over to our Great Shot podcast feed. We've already named our top five men's and women's contenders for the singles titles. We've also got episodes planned to discuss the dark horses entering the event to discuss how we think the Americans will fare. And then, of course, I know the draws are already out. We're going to save that for our last exercise. But you know we got to break down the draws before play begins here at Crack Rackets. All of that content available over on the Great Shot podcast feed, which you can go find on our recently renovated Crack Rackets website, or you can find by searching the Great Shot Podcast wherever you choose to listen to your podcasts. I also would point out we've got a new show for all of you listeners to enjoy. It's season two of the Inside Out podcast, and it's breaking down the new Netflix docuseries Breakpoint, which offers an inside look into the life of top tennis players on the WTA and ATP tours. I am thrilled to finally have an excuse to work with my dear friend Gil Gross, who will join me on every episode of the show, breaking down each new episode of the Netflix docuseries. You can find that series on Gil's YouTube uh, YouTube page, I think is what it's called. Leave that in. Super, there is no super producer Daniel West stuff. Leave that in. I have to leave it in because I don't know how to take it out, but you can find it on Gil's YouTube page. You can also find it again on our Cracked Rackets website or by searching the Inside Out podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Very excited to get that show rock and rolling with my dear friend Gil Gross. That said, again, Great Shot Podcast for Australian Open content, Inside Out Podcast feed for Breakpoint content. On this podcast, we're focused on the day-to-day action happening on tour. So again, updates on Adelaide, Auckland, Hobart, Australian Open qualifying. That's the plan for all of you listeners today. Of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out here on this show is because of the support we get from our dear friends over at Tennis Point. I'll keep things brief, as I know many of you listeners have listened to every episode here in 2020. 23 and you already know the deal tennis-point.com use that promo code cr15 to show your appreciation for their support of this show to show your appreciation for the fact that they understand the necessity 
of providing a daily podcast to tennis shows to help them keep up a daily podcast to tennis fans, excuse me, uh, to help them keep up with all the action. The way you can show your appreciation is when you need anything to update your own tennis equipment, go to tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. With that said, let's talk some tennis here on Thursday's episode of the Mini Break Podcast. Let's start as we have all week long with what is just an event too good to be week number two of the 2023 season. Of course, that's the WTA event happening this week in Adelaide, and it always helps for these events in Australia, in New Zealand, for these events to be the only warm-up events in the lead-up to the year's first major, right? There's not the smorgasbord of options that you have heading into the French Open, heading into the U.S. Open. Certainly Wimbledon, it feels like you get draws like this at Queen's Club, uh, certainly in Halle, although those are 500 events as opposed to the 250s we see here this week. But it's even more pronounced, I think, during this Australia swing because, again, you have two weeks of warm-up events and then the year's first major starts. And all of these players need repetitions prior to that first major, and so they play all of these events, whether it be United Cup, whether it be the eight tour-level options they've had over the course of the past two weeks. What a stellar and strong start to this 2023 season. And I do think there's been a strong carryover effect. And I do want to highlight that theme throughout the course of today's show because I know I alluded to this earlier in the week. We talk so frequently about the lack of an offseason in pro tennis, the fact that they were playing significant tennis into late October. And for the best players in the world, you're playing in early November. There's obviously a plethora of exhibition opportunities for players during the six-week hiatus in tour play from mid-November to the end of December. And certainly we see a bunch of top players play at least one, two events to make a little money, get some match play in throughout the course of that offseason. But given how short that length is, only six weeks of time, if you get injured on the tour, not to make a morbid comparison, but typically you're out for at least six weeks. And, you know, again, it's just interesting to me how short that time span is. That's a month and a half, right? And the reason I bring up the injury thing is let's say you get injured at Indian Wells. You're out a month and a half. Okay, you missed the clay court portion of the season, but hopefully you're back in the swing of things come the grass court season. That's really all the off season is. Is like uh, If you divide the season into five parts, Australia through the sunshine swing, the clay court season, the grass court season, Winston-Salem, Atlanta, and then Cincinnati, Montreal, U.S. Open, everything through. Or you want to say the third part, part of the season is Wimbledon through the U.S. Open. And then the fourth part is the U.S. Open all the way through. The fifth part of the season is that off season, right? You're only missing a fifth of the calendar, it feels like, with that off season, You still have 80% to go. I have to leave that in because I don't have Super Producer Daniel Westoff. That was a bit rambly. I know that math ultimately leads nowhere. But the point is, I think the, the reason I bring that up is I think momentum does carry over in this sport. I think, case in point, I always turn to Arena Sabalenka, who at the end of 2020 wins Linz, wins Ostrava, and comes right out the bat and has a strong Abu Dhabi, you know, really strong Australian Open, and things were swinging for her in 2021, which was her first definitive top eight season of her career. You know, I think we've seen a couple of players carry over their top level from last season into this year, and I think that's manifested itself very clearly in this 
second week of Adelaide on the women's side. And the place I would start is with Belinda Bencic, who, if you listen to any of our off-season content here at Cracked Rackets, you know how fond I was of Bencic's 2022 season. I understand she didn't make a single second week at the majors, but she was better at tennis. She looked better from an eye test perspective. Mathematically, she was as good, if not better. And you know, result-wise, she was better in every other week of the season than the majors than she has been in any season of her career. She played more frequently. She was more consistent in her first-round battles. You look for Benchich, who went 42-19 and overall in 2022. 61 matches is the second most she's played in her career behind her 2019, where she went 49-21 and and won 70% of her matches, excuse me, overall. Last year, she was at 68.9, which is, again, the second best of her career. But again, what was the difference between last season and 2019? In 2019, there were a couple of peaks. She played really well in Dubai, winning the title there, played well, I believe, at Indian Wells semifinals, I want to say there, you know, makes a final in Mallorca, wins a title in Moscow. Uh, and had a really good run to the U.S. Open semifinal. There were some definitive runs that defined Benchich's 2020, uh, 2019 season. You look for her last year, she only made two finals. She won in Charleston. She made the final in Berlin. Again, she didn't make a single second week at the Slam. So there was no single event where she racked up four, five-plus wins. It was consistency week in, week out. And you look for Benchich now, she's 44-18 and 18 over her last 52 weeks. That's a 71% win percentage. That's better than that career-high win percentage she put together in 2019. And again, I'm well aware the Slam success wasn't there last season. But you look for her event by event. She made... Nine, uh, eight total quarterfinals, excuse me, throughout the course of her 2022, excuse me, nine total quarterfinals throughout the course of her 2022 season. She's off to a strong start here. First quarterfinal of her first event. And, you know, again, it's how she's done it here with wins over Garcia, over Kudermatova, over a player in Kalinskaya, who she's now played three times in the last six months. And she's 3-0 and against. That's really hard to do against any top 90 opponent to beat them three times consecutively only one of them goes three sets again when you do that that typically means you are a very good player if things are otherwise relatively similar you know again you feel like eventually the other player upsets the other because the margins are so slim no that's not the case for Ben Chichen you know again to get the win over Garcia as well last night six two three six six four a match where you know, she went. She was broken twice, 0 for 2 in saving breakpoint chances, was broken in the third set, then went up in early, uh, broken in the second set, excuse me, that she dropped, and then went up an early break in the third, only to see that break back, get things back on serve. But overall, th- there are two big things that stand out for me from Belinda Bencic over the course of the past two years, things that have carried over, I think, now for a 50-week stretch, 52-week stretch, I should say. And it's really three things. And honestly, it might be 80 weeks if you include 2021. The first and most important is she is finally healthy. And for Belinda Bencic, who dealt with so many different injuries early in her career, just all over her body, that stopped her momentum. Because, of course, this is a player, Bencic, who was probably the best women's junior of the 2010s. Was just 
an unequivocal junior slam champion, world junior number one. You see it in her contact point. Her ability to generate pace, her ability to strike the ball cleanly has always been pristine. I actually think the best comparison for Belinda Bencic is Taylor Fritz on the men's side. Two players who have never had issues playing the tennis. It's, you know, never had issues hitting the big service. The issues with the consistency, the issues with the athleticism. And now for Belinda Bencic, who's, by the way, the oldest 25-year-old in the world. The fact that Bencic is only 25 years old, considering she's been a part of the tennis conversation for about a decade now, given how good she was in the juniors. The fact that, you know, she won 40-plus WTA matches in 2015 when she was just 18 years old. It's been nearly a decade for Belinda Bencic on the Pro Tour, and... I do think last year was the most complete year she played. You look for her, she held 77% of the time. That was a career high for Benchich. And, you know, that 77% number, I believe, ranked number two, uh, excuse me, number four on the WTA Tour, uh, trailing only uh, Samsonova, Garcia, Rabakina, and excuse me, now over the last 52 weeks, she trails Sviantec as well. So she ranks fifth with that 77%, but she's top five server. On the WTA Tour, she was a top 10 server in 2022, even when that number was a little bit lower at 75%. And again, that's two years consecutively. She's been a top 10 server. And part of it is the serve itself. Her slice out wide on the deuce side uh, gave Garcia all sorts of fits because Garcia tries to take that return early on the rise and beat you to the spot. And Benchich had her yanked so far off the court that Benchich just had a full runway of space, as I like to describe it. Just that easy lane down the ad side, which is like a plane landing. It's a runway for you to land that forehand. And Benchich landed the plus one ball in that runway of space every time. She did an exceptional job of just, again, keeping Garcia off the back foot, uh, on her back foot. Anytime Garcia tried to, to cheat forward, uh, tried to cheat forward, excuse me, Benchich took the ball early on the rise and peppered it at her feet to take advantage of Garcia's no-man's-land positioning. And Benchich did a great job making first serves throughout the course of the match. She made 63.4% of it. That would be 1% above her career average, which is above, by the way, the average of a top 50 player. So not only does she win more first serve points, she's top 10 in first serve win percentage, but she also makes more first serves than most players, and that's why she's a top five server on the WTA Tour. And again, the weapons are unequivocal. Her ability to turn into a backhand doesn't matter how much pace you generate. Benchich, if she gets her hands on that ball, she's going to get a ball back with pace on it and with some sort of action. She'll place it well. She hit an outstanding on-the-run, down-the-line passing shot uh, on the backhand wing, which brings me to the third thing, health, serve, and the movement. Belinda Benchich is moving better than she ever has in her career, and guess what? It's because she's been healthy for two and a half years. She's able to be in the gym. She's able to become the sort of athlete that if you watched her a decade ago, you always thought she might be because, again, the contact point has always been pure. Yes, when Garcia landed a good first serve into the forehand, Garcia was able to play aggressively. There were times when Garcia picked on the Benchich second serve, but again, overall, Benchich wins 58% of her second serve points, and Garcia's inability to come up with a plan B, plan C, plan D is why she might sometimes struggle in these top 20 sort of matchups consecutively because, again, 
The best part about Caroline Garcia's game is how aggressive she is. She has elite weapons. Her first serve, her first forehand, her ability to take a ball early on the rise and beat you down the line. The pace of her ball will push any player, even at times Benchich, off the baseline. And then once she has you off the baseline, you're just at her whim from a baseline perspective. And because she's so good at holding serve, holding over 80% of the time last season, the only player on the WTA Tour to do that, she's able to be as aggressive as she wants on the return, step inside the baseline, put some pressure on you with her positioning. Benchich didn't flinch in the face of that positioning. Again, the 6-2-3-6-6-4 match where Benchich breaks at the end. Uh, Benchich did a really good job of peppering the Garcia backhand, but then also keeping her honest by playing her own backhand down the line and not being afraid to challenge Garcia's on-the-run forehand. It's been a really good run for Benchich. Wins over Muguruza, Kalinskaya, now Garcia. She's going to take on a Veronica Kudermatova, who she's played nine times. She's five and four against. 57.3% favorite in that match, according to the Tennis Abstract. She's a 33.1% favorite to win the event. Again, I am well aware Belinda Bencic did not make a second week of a Grand Slam last year. I made this argument throughout the month of December. Uh, I think uh, throughout last season she didn't make a second week. I think she's going to have a major bounce back this year at the Slams. And I just think she is going to have a top 10 season because for the majority of the year, she was a top 10 player last year. And the all the advanced analytics love her. You look for Bencic, she's eighth right now according to overall ELO rating. It's too soon, obviously, in the year to look at yearly ELO rating with this run. Benchage up to number 10 in the live rankings, by the way, up three spots back into the top 10 is the 25-year-old Benchage, who I mentioned that number 25. She should be in the prime of her career. It makes sense that she would play her best tennis here in 2023. And, I mean, again, you look for Benchage overall in her career. She's only made three slam quarterfinals. They've all come at the U.S. Open. She's only made the second week of the Australian Open once. It came back in 2016 when she was 19 years old, or I think at the time still 18 because of when Australian Open happens. It's been a while for Belinda Bencich to have things click in Australia. Again, I think this is a really good week, and I think this will allow I, – I, I think this is the sort of week that affords you the sort of confidence you need heading into an Australian Open where outside of what we know about Iga, again, there's a lot of openness on the WTA side. And when I talk about my WTA dark horses, I can assure you Belinda Bencic will be mentioned even more strongly than she was here today. Uh, With that said, again, to look at everything else that's happened in Adelaide, you know, talk about the carryover effect for Veronica Kudermatova, Daria Kasakina. You look overall during the 2022 season, these are two players who showed up in so many quarterfinals week in, week out throughout the course of the year. You look overall in terms of quarterfinals made in 2022, Kudermatova, one of three players to make double digits. She made 11 total quarterfinals. Again, that ranked third overall, trailing Josh Fiontek and Jabur Kasakina made eight total quarterfinals. That ranked uh, tied for eighth overall in the WTA Tour and obviously helped propel her into the WTA Tour Finals. I mean, these are two players who were just so consistent at every event throughout the course of 2022. And, you know, what did a wise man once say? You can't win the tournament in round number one. You can certainly lose it. These players put themselves in position to at least have a shot at bringing home the title. 
every week. And, you know, again, you look for Kudermatova, who, by the way, already two quarterfinals under her belt this week. She made quarterfinals last week before uh, a tricky straight set loss to Arena Camilla Begu, where she just didn't have her rhythm. Too many errors in that match. And anyways, I was on the call for it. That's why I remember it so clearly. Um, But she bounces back this week. Three sets over Azarenka. Three sets yesterday over Danielle Collins, 4-6-7-6-6-1, a match where she faced, I believe, four match points, if not five. I know she faced four prior to that second set tie break. I think she went up 6-5. Yeah, because she won at 7-5, so she didn't face an additional match point in the breaker. I mean, look, Kudermatova, I I said this earlier in the week. I'll say it again. She's gotten better as a mover. Like, the thing for Veronica Kudermatova, who, by the way, you look for Kudermatova, she's held serve 76.9% of the time last season. That was a top 10 number on the WTA Tour. She's at 73.2 through six matches so far this year. That's also a top 10 number, uh, 3% above the top 50 average. Not only does she have that unequivocal weapon, the first serve, which sets up her first strike, which she wants to play flat, down the line off of either wing, forehand or backhand, or just flat into the open space, beats you to the spot. She likes to play the swinging volley to take time away from you as well. She's streaky as a returner. There's no doubt about that. But I've seen in each of her matches, uh, even against, you know, obviously Andrescu and Isimova in Adelaide, number one, but against Azarenka here this week, against Colin certainly as well. She's still playing with pace on the return of serve, but she's given herself more margin in her targets. And I think against Danielle Collins, what she did so well is just play with pace through the forehand, but not necessarily down the line. It could be through the forehand, but through the center of the court to set up the second shot or the third shot by playing through that forehand again because Danielle Collins is elite on the backhand wing. You don't want to trifle with that side. Her forehand backswing is a little bit bigger. If you can play with pace, you can play with depth, she might leave you something short. And when she left something short, Kudermatova immediately attacked the outer thirds. And again, Collins is fine as a mover, but she's not great. She doesn't want to be playing on the move. She wants to have her feet set and be able to turn freely with her momentum going forward into the court, as just about any player was. But when Collins does it, she can be elite with that skill. And Kudermatova took that away from her, particularly in the third set where you could just tell Collins was so frustrated after having the four match points in set number two. And let's be clear. This loss does not diminish the threat that is Danielle Collins entering the Australian Open. She had four match points in this. And in the first set, the backhand was striking on all cylinders. She was the one initiating first strike, whether it was by making more first serves in the first set than she did throughout the rest of the course of the match, but just moving that first ball around the court so effectively and forcing Kudermatova to feel like she needed to be aggressive when on the run. And that's when the errors start to come for the 25-year-old Russian Collins was just immensely frustrated in that third set. No doubt about it, but credit to Kudermatova, who lingered long enough for that frustration to mount. Again, Kudermatova into two quarterfinals to start the year. You know what I'm going to say, folks. People don't talk enough about how successful Veronica Kudermatova has been. A top 10 server for about three years consecutively now. She's sitting at number nine in the live rankings. That's a career high. And, you know, even if Bencic wins the title in Adelaide, Kudermatova is still going to be number nine in the live rankings entering the Australian Open. And, you know, you look for Kudermatova, who overall, again, a really successful 2022. She goes 39 and 20 on the year, but actually third round Australian Open. Interesting. 
She lost to Sakari third round there. She actually made a final in Melbourne to start last year, but now quarterfinals, semifinals, she's made up for that. Finals in Dubai. All right, quarterfinals in Dean Wells. I forgot. You make 11 quarterfinals, you're good all year long. So, look, there's pressure on Kunabatova if she wants to sustain this ranking because she wasn't a one-result runner. She didn't have this massive title run at a massive event. She had to be really good everywhere. She's doing that again to start this season. Quarterfinal in Adelaide 1, semifinal in Adelaide 2. Again, she's 4-5 and five in her career against a rising Belinda Benchich as well. That's a pecking order match to kick things off here in week number two, a reason to be tuned in here to championship weekend, of course. I know that's a strong start on the top half of the draw. Bottom half of the draw, look, Daria Kasakina needed to bounce back after a loss that is certainly appreciated in value first round last year, uh, last week, excuse me, to Linda Naskova, the eventual finalist in Adelaide one, but Kasakina. 2-5 over Krejcikova, 3-6 and six over Kvitova. I mean, the errors just piled up for Kvitova as the match progressed. And look, Kasakina finished 49th amongst top 50 players and how frequently she held serve last year. She made 71% of her first serves. You got to do that against Kvitova because if you give Kvitova a look at the Kasakina second serve, which can hang like a hang-in curveball, Kvitova is just going to be swinging cleanly. And certainly there were moments in this match where Kvitova had opportunities to do exactly that. But Kasakina is a special athlete. I mentioned on a show earlier this week, I think Boshkova might be the best mover on the WTA Tour. The conversation is Boshkova, Goff, Kasakina, and I'm probably Iga. Like, those are the four that you start the conversation with. And again, maybe I'm missing someone else. I, at A.L. Gruskin, I implore all of you mini-break listeners, let me know who I'm forgetting. But, oh my God, Kasakina's ability to absorb the first strike of Petra Kvitova, and then with her athleticism, with her creativity, with her improvisational skills, she might be the best improviser on the WTA Tour right now. That ability to just hit with heavy topspin, loopy, neutral balls, but into the open space that are just effective. It's it's high-percentage tennis. It's, dare I say, are her and Brooksby comps for one another? That's a discussion we can have another day. But Kasakina into her first quarterfinal of the year again. She finished tied for eighth with eight quarterfinals last year. Two good wins to steady the ship for her heading into the Australian Open. But, you know, again, Benchich has been the best from an eye test perspective this week. The most improved from last year. No carryover effect here from Adelaide. And boy, did she need this run. Paula Bedosa has been excellent this week. Whether it was her first round win, 4-3 and three over Contave, 1-5 over Kanepi in the round of 16. Now 6-5 and five over Beatriz Haddad Maya to advance to the quarterfinals. You look for Bedosa, uh, who yesterday in that match... Wow, just broken just once throughout the course of it. Uh, I believe she was up a break at the time when she was broken. So again, that break was just to get things back on serve for Haddad Maya. But only made 59% of her first serves. Boy, was she effective with that first serve placement. And the key thing for me wasn't even the serve. It was the physicality. She just looks healthy. And we know that the 25-year-old can be an elite athlete when she is at her healthiest. Her ability to drive through both wings, the backhand down the line, her ability to hit the forehand inside out with pace and angle, her ability to hit the inside in forehand, her ability to hit the backhand cross with pace. Like She has that elite twitchiness, that elite athleticism. She's a good mover. She can snap through the serve, hit to you know that 110, 120-ish range 
when she really wants to snap through it. The key to me was how patient she was and how disciplined she was in playing through the Haddad Maya forehand because she clearly, in the scouting report, saw something that was more predictable in that Haddad Maya forehand. And I do think that it was a good call because Bedosa was plenty comfortable with her athleticism, with how firm she is with her hands swinging through that backhand side, how strong she is with her hands in swinging through it, that she could handle the topspin, the angle, the height of that Bedosa forehand, because uh, of the Haddad Maya forehand, excuse me, because it is a heavier shot. And it just offered Bedosa options because, you know, Haddad Maya would be the one who'd have to take a risk in changing direction. And when she did that, Bedosa, whether it was exploding with a forehand down the line behind Haddad Maya, whether it was keeping Haddad Maya guessing by hitting that down the line ball five times in a row and then opening things up with the forehand cross through the court. Bedosa played a great match, and she's played three great matches this week in Adelaide, which, when was the last time Paula Bedosa played three great matches consecutively? You look for her in terms of semifinals in general. She made the semifinals in San Jose last year, but only two wins there. Mandelik, Goff, I don't think that counts. She made the semifinals Indian Wells, beat Cerebes, Tormo, Fernandez, Kudermatova before a three-set loss to Sakari at Indian Wells. Yeah, that's probably the last one. I mean, Rabakina Jabur before a loss to Sablink in the Stuttgart semifinals. That's a good two-match run. But the last three-match run, you'd have to go all the way back to Indian Wells last year. It's been that long. And she hasn't been fully healthy probably since that Indian Wells run. And so, again, to see her healthy, to see her play this level of tennis, she has to be in the conversation. Maybe not dark horse to win the event, but depending on, and I know the draw has come out, I just don't know it off the top of my head yet, but depending on you know where she is in the draw, boy, I want no part of a 16-seeded Paula Bedosa before the quarterfinals or further because, again, I just am going to have to bring a high level of tennis from start to finish if she's going to continue to move this well and have the underlying physicality, the discipline she showed against Haddad Baya mixed in with the elite twitchiness and weaponry she can bring as well. And again, you look at this Adelaide semifinal run. You have the number 8, 9, 10, and 16 players in the live rankings all still competing five days before the start of the 2023 Australian Open. It does not get better than that, according to the Tennis Abstract Singles forecast. And by the way, Kasatkina, 2-1 in her career against Bedosa. But Bedosa, 54% favored in that match. Bencic, a 57.3% favored in her semifinal. Bencic, 33-1 to win the event. Bedosa, 25-5. Kudermatova, 21.5. Kasatkina, 19.9. So they say it's a pick em. My eyes say Bencic or Bedosa. I think that's the final, no matter what. It would be fun to get Kudermatova-Kasakina, the two most disrespected players, and I just disrespected their, them there by predicting against them. But that would be a fun semifinal for us tennis nerds who know how consistent each of them have been over the course of the past, really two years, but past 15 months in particular. That said, again, have to give a shout out each and every day on the show to the fact that Adelaide is a dual tournament site. The fact we don't just have the women playing there this week, but we've got the men competing there as well. And, you know, last week things got a little bit funky. Not in Auckland where Goff wins the title or, you know, in Adelaide, Sabalenka wins the title, Djokovic wins the title in Adelaide. But things got a little bit funky in our second ATP event 
last week, certainly in India with Greek Spore knocking off Bonzi in the finals. No one expected that. I think Adelaide 2 is going to be our funky result of the week uh, here in week number two of the season because you look at who's remaining as we look at the semifinals. Tanasi Kokonakis, who earns another thrilling three-set victory, this time over six-seed Mimir Kasmenovic to advance to the semifinals here at Adelaide 2 for the second consecutive season. Of course, Kokonakis is the defending champion at this event, and I want to get into his success in this match against Kasmenovic in a second, but... Kokonakis, RBA, Draper, Sun Wukwan. Those are your four semifinalists. Again, the Adelaide ticket, what's selling it? It's the women's side. That's what you're selling if you're the tournament promoters because you have four of the top 16 players on the women's side. And obviously, we here at Crack Rackets love our... Well, okay, they get to sell Kokonakis as well. That was terrible, unforced error by me. I can't put a rewind sound effect or say cut it out because we don't have super producer Daniel Westhoff. But Tanasi Kokonakis is from Australia. He's the defending champ. He embraces the crowd away. No one does. Of course, he's the night match. He's who's selling out that Adelaide crowd. But... The other two be- our matches are better. Like Benchic versus Kudermatova, Kasekina versus Bedosa are, are definitively two and three. And then with all due respect to Jack Draper, who I actually think you can sell, given he's a young rising talent, Sun Wukwan, who's always captivating. And, you know, again, it's an Australian event, but how infrequently are there players in Korea who have the chance to compete on the other side of the globe? At least it's a closer uh, event to a, a Korea, to a South Korea than, say, anything in Europe, anything in North America either. So it's often been, I I feel like Asian players often get more support in Australia than they will in other events simply because distance-wise it is a little bit closer for certain parts of the continent. Anyways, it's it's an interesting sell job uh, for the weekend ticket. What are are you making uh, the primetime matches other than Kokonakis, who has to be your night session match? You look right now, RBA, the pro, actually not the prohibitive favorite. Jack Draper, who was one of nine players who finished top 25 in both hold and break percentage last season, as did Roberto Bautista Agu. They are both prohibitive favorites. Uh, RBA 66.2 against Kokonakis. Draper 61.5 against Sun Wukwan. To sort of recap the matches quickly on the men's side, you look for Tanasi Kokonakis again, 6-3, 6-7, 6 1 win over Miamir Kasmenovic. You look for Kokonakis now in his career tour level semifinals that he's reached overall. It is the third time he has reached a tour level semifinal in Adelaide. Obviously, the, set, the run to the title last year made the semis in Adelaide in 2022. Also made a semifinal run in, uh, in Los Cabos back in 2017, but it's his fourth career semifinal. Three of them have come in Adelaide. I've said it before yesterday, as a matter of fact. I'll say it again. There is no player who has a better home crowd, hometown advantage, who plays better in that moment than Tanasi Kokonakis when he gets to play at home in front of the Australian crowd. And by the way, given he's defended uh, title points, Kokonakis fell outside the top 150 after, you know, if he was 110 to start the week. He fell outside the top 150 with the points coming off of his record. He's back up to number 159 by making the semifinals. That's a serious win. 
because you know at, at the minimum now you're certainly getting into challengers you could probably get into a lot of atp qualifying rounds and certainly you're getting into slam qualifying at the worst he wins one more match he's back up into the top 135 he wins the title he'll go all the way back up to around number 113 in the rankings maybe a little higher than that depending on what happens could perhaps crack the top 110 again it's clutch the serving has been spectacular all week long. You look at what Kokonakis was able to do uh, last night against uh, Mimir Kazmenovic. Went unbroken after being broken just once against Rublev, just once against Paparin early in the week. He won 86% of his first serve points for the second consecutive match. He made two-thirds of his first serves during the course of the match. Won 64% of his second serve points in Again, I, I lingered on this yesterday, so I'll say it quickly. He's got top 50 weapons. First serve is a weapon. It sets up the first forehand, which he hits so decisively as a weapon. When he's stepping into his backhand, leaning into it, he can hit it big down the line. He's comfortable playing with pace cross court. He hits the slice when he's on the run because he's not the most fluid mover, though he has a very explosive first step. He's a good volleyer. Again, he's not the best improviser. He's a better mover on hard courts than he is on clay courts. But the weapons are real. And if Kokonakis can stay healthy, I know he struggled throughout the course of last season, 17-17 and 17 overall in tour-level play. And you look overall, eight of those wins came in Adelaide last year where he went semifinals, Adelaide won, title in Adelaide two. Eight of his 17 wins came in Australia last year. Well, for what it's worth, you look for him here this year. He already has four under his belt as he beat Cressy to reach the round of 16 in Adelaide 1. Now into the semifinals in Adelaide 2 in a very reasonable first round at the Australian Open as he is going to take on Fabio Fognini. Big run for Kokonakis who, if he can win one more match here against RBA or get a win over Fabio Fognini, now again, you're back in the top 150, back approaching where you need to be to continue to make progress in your ATP career. But look, he's going to have a serious test. You play three consecutive three-set matches as he has. I don't care how hard the crowd is behind you. You're going to take on the surest thing in, in you know in the third tier of the ATP tour in 34-year-old Roberto Bautista Agu, who after beating Rublev, losing to Korda, Two good wins this week. Beats Haasa in three sets, but was much better against Davidovich Fokina. Three and two win for RBA. Didn't face a break point in the match. Wins 80% of his second serve points. 78% of his first serves, but made 76% of his first serves. Was around eight aces for the match. Davidovich Fokina just didn't have it. Like The thread was lost. He wasn't disciplined. He was pulling the trigger too soon. He got baited into all the patterns RBA wanted to play. And RBA was hitting the forehand brilliantly, was exploding with the backhand down the line, was changing directions as he loves to do. But Davidovich Fokina played the sort of stinker that he mixes in far too frequently. He'll play three extraordinary matches, then four out of the next five will be duds. Again, progress for Davidovich Fokina this year would be four good matches mixed in with maybe one to at most two bad ones. Played two good ones to start here. Let's see two good ones in Australia. Let's see him make a third round, hold seed, or you know, put himself in a position to beat a seed. Uh, tough result for Davidovich Fokina, but RBA looked much better here in his second match, and you know, again, gets a look at bigger weapons now and. You know, he knows the game plan against Kokonakis. It's can he out-execute. So it's a good test for him heading into Australia. 
you know, the big thing on the bottom half of the draw, I've said it throughout the course of the offseason, I'll say it again, Jack Draper is going to be a top 30 player by the end of this season. You look for Draper, who again, top 25 in both hold and break percentage last year, one of just nine guys you can say that about, and that's even if you filter out his challenger level success. He went 19 and 14 overall on the ATP Tour last year, and still held over the tour, you know, it was 84.8% of the time, 2% above the top 50 player, broke serve 23.7% of the time, 1% above the average top 50 player. Draper went 19-14 overall on the ATP Tour last year, one semifinal in Eastburn, two quarterfinals, Canada, obviously the big one, Winston-Salem the other, ends the year with a semifinal run at the next-gen finals, and you know, after starting the season with a loss to Hatchinov in the round of 16, gets revenge in that match. Beats Hatchinov 4-6, and six, two early breaks in each set. Now, he blinked at the end of set number two, served forward at 5-4, played a shaky game, mixed in a double fault to just a bad drop shot on the break point chance for Hatchinov as well. But Immediately reset the course, immediately refound his focus, and I just love how aggressive Draper played and how unafraid he was in this third match because Draper lost to Hatchinov at the U.S. Open, lost to him last week in Adelaide. He was much more aggressive with his backhand. He wasn't afraid. He said, wait, you don't hit the forehand that heavy, and I think I can play with my backhand cross-court through your forehand, and... You know, the adjustment for Hatchinov is play with pace through the Draper forehand because Draper's backswing is a little big. His grip is a little bit extreme. And if you can get depth into that Draper forehand, he will leave it short throughout the course of a baseline rally. But Hatchinov wasn't able to do that consistently with his own backhand in the way that Draper was in a similar scouting report on Hatchinov. And Draper executed the game plan better. Draper won 80% of his first serve points, 54% of his second serve points, again, was only broken when he was serving for the match, up 5-4. That was the only time he was broken throughout the course of the match, and he bounced back, played a really sharp tiebreak in that second set, and that is why I continue to say, I tweeted it early in the week, Jack Draper, in some form or another, is a dark horse entering the U.S. Open, and Again, you look for Draper now into the semifinals here of an ATP event for the technically third time in his career, if you count the next-gen finals twice in tour-level events. But uh, Draper now going to take on the dangerous Sun Wukwan, who, listen to these wins this week, beats Thomas Mychak uh, after losing to him in the final round of qualifying, then beats Carreño Boost in three sets, one and two over Emer yesterday. He was just exploding through the ball. He was taking his chances. And you look for a Quan who went 25-30 and 30 overall last season. You look for him in first matches, uh, went 16-8 and eight overall on the year. But you look for him in second matches, 2-14. and 14. He only made the quarterfinals in two different events last season. He's now into a semifinal here to start 2023. And you look for him overall in his career, Quan, into a tour-level semifinal for the fourth time. But it's the second time now it's happened in his last four events. Talk about carryover effect, bringing over the momentum he built from that Tokyo run to end last season. And you look for Quan. This was big for him by making the semifinals. He's back into the top 75, up to number 73. And that just means he's going to get to play on advantageous surfaces at the tour level throughout the course of February. Shout out to Sun Wukwan on the big victory. Draper 1-0 in the career head-to-head between Quan Kokonakis RBA playing their first match in their uh, 
in their careers. Again, RBA the favorite, 39.5% to win the event. Draper 30.9, Quan 15, Kokonakis 14.6. Be interesting to see whom between Quan and Kokonakis would ultimately be considered the favorite. But that is where things stand on the men's side of Adelaide, of course. We've also got two other tour events, one of them happening in Tasmania over in Hobart on the women's side. I did the rant yesterday, so I'm not going to do it again today, but I'm telling you folks, Sonia Kennan is back. And it's not top 25 back, but she looks like a top 50 player once again. Got off to a slow start. Kalanina was playing exceptional tennis in set number one. Every neutral backhand Kalanina hit, uh, uh, or every neutral backhand, excuse me, Kennan hit, Kalanina was ripping to one corner or another on the court. But Kalanina was unable to sustain that level. And Kennan, who started out spraying throughout the course of the match, she found her rhythm. She started connecting on the return of serve to just not allow Kalanina to have these free rips on plus one balls. And they weren't honestly free rips in set number one. Kalanina was just under that much more pressure because of how well Kennan was returning in set number two. And then Kennan pulled away a 4-6-6-3-6-1 victory. She was finding the corners with ease. The depth she's able to generate is exceptional. When she has time on the forehand, she winds up on it. It explodes through the court. The backhand has always been so fluid off of Kennan's racket. She can play the slices, the angles, the drop shots, the lobs. The arsenal is back. She's moving better. What I really liked in set number one is she had a bunch of breakpoint chances, wasn't able to convert, then gets broken in her 4-5 service game to lose that first set. Didn't let the frustration get the better of her. She bounced back, comes back, earns a much-needed three-set win, and is into her first semifinal since the 2020 French Open. Like, it's been that long for Sonia Kennan. 2020 French Open. And by the way, it's only the 12th tour-level final of Kennan's career, which is crazy to say considering she's the slam champion and has reached another final, obviously. But 12th semi of her career, first in two and a half years, and well-deserved for Kennan, who I'm telling you is playing top 50 ball once again. And you look for Kennan, boy, is her first-round match at the Australian Open against Victoria Azarenka. Going to be absolutely fascinating. That said, Kennan into the semifinals where she will now face Elisabetta Cochiaretto. Cochiaretto into just a second career tour-level semifinal. But you look for Cochiaretto. She's thriving right now. The 21-year-old Italian is up to a new career high, number 58 in the live rankings. And look, she's got pop. There's no denying that about Cochiaretto. Her weapons just ultimately overwhelming Bernardo Pera in a 5-7-7-6-6-4 win. You look for Cochiaretto wins over Cornet, Paolini, and Pera to get to this second career tour-level semifinal. You look for Cochiaretto, who is now 47-24 and overall in her last 52 weeks, had a ton, a ton of of ITF-level success throughout the course of last season. 60Ks, 125, 80s, you name them. She was in the finals of just about all of them. Coach has played really good ball over the course of the past year, and she's gotten, she's gotten a little more fluid in the corners, and when she has time, again, the pace she's able to generate, her ball explodes with flat, but explodes through the court. I thought she absorbed, redirected, and utilized the lefty top spin that Para provided her extraordinarily well. Again, I think Kennan's going to be able to take time away 
more consistently with more line drive on her ball in a way that Perez wasn't. The top spin Perez was providing uh, Coach Hirota. Coach Hirota could just bunt through the ball that much more easily. But look, 21 years old, she's in the top 75. Keep your eyes on Coach Hirota. She's one of those players that just fills out a generation on the WTA tour. It's just like you need your right, you need your players ranked 35 to 50. And I think that's the future for Coach Iretto with the weapons that she has. And again, into a second tour level semifinal here to start the season up to a new career high of number 58. Coach Iretto, 60.1% favorite according to Tennis Abstract against Kennan. My eyes says Kennan should be the favorite in their first career head-to-head matchup. That said, on the top half of the draw, it's Anna Blinkova, the 24-year-old Russian, into the semifinals for just the fourth time in her career at the tour level. She looked great in a 3-4 and four win over Putensva. And Blinkova's always had a good first step, but again, she's moving better, and that just allows her to beat you to the spot, take that ball early, and oh my God, did she just drive everything right through Yulia Putensva in that 3-4 and four win. The match was on Blinkova's terms, and all the slices, all the high loopy stuff that Putensva likes to utilize, she couldn't because Blinkova, if you give Blinkova time, she's just connecting with the ball that cleanly. You look for Blinkova now in her last 52 weeks, 51-28 and 28 overall. Again, it's her fourth career tour semifinal. Blinkova currently up to number 59 in the live rankings. That's five spots off her career high, 24 years old. It makes sense. I think her career is being one of those players for the next three to five years in that 35 to 60 range with the weapons she possesses. It's a big run for the qualifier Blinkova, who's earned wins over uh, Gracheva, Udvardi, Bronzetti, Bozhkova, and now Putensiva to get to the semifinals. That is a heck of a run for the Russian, who, by the way, also won a match last week in Auckland before getting knocked out by eventual finalist Rebecca Masarova. Three-set win over this week's semifinalist Elisabetta Cochiretto. So good week for the 24-year-old Russian. Good week for 29-year-old Lauren Davis, who is into a seventh career semifinal at the tour level with her 3-3 three and three win over the big-hitting Wang Xin Yu. Davis just had Wang Xinyu on the run. She took time away, didn't let Wang Xinyu get into that big forehand backswing, and ultimately, that's how Davis is able to progress. You look for Lauren Davis with this run. She's back up to number 77 in the live rankings. First semifinal for her since June 2021 in Nottingham. It's a nice way to start out the season for the veteran American. Of course, you look right now, according to Tennis Abstract, the favorite to win the title in Hobart is Cochiretto. Even though Blinkova beat her last week, Cochiretto, 60.1 per, uh, excuse me, 32% favorite. Davis, 25-6. Blinkova, 25-3. Kennan, 17-2. By the way, they have Lauren Davis as a 50.2% favorite over Blinkova. That, my friends, is the definition of a toss-up. Honestly, this whole tournament's a toss-up. That the delta between Cochiretto and Kennan is 14.8%, and it's the semifinal round, speaks to the fact that it does feel like anything could happen this week to end things in Hobart. That said, let's move on now to what is the Cam Norrie show. We're all wondering, Cam Norrie go capture another ATP title this week in his former home country of Auckland. Norrie escapes the quarterfinals with a 6-1-6-7-6-2 win over former NCAA champion out of UCLA, Marcos Giron. Norrie was cruising in set number one, was hitting the forehand freely, was hitting it down the line really well and unexpectedly to prevent Garon from cheating over on that ad side and hitting the ad side forehand, which he hit so well. 
And then Garon found his rhythm in set number two. Started being a little more aggressive with his own backhand. Decided, you know what, let me just go down swinging. But then Nori steadied the ship. He was broken once. It was in set number two. A break he quickly got back. And again, faces just six break points in the match. Fights off five of them. Makes over 72% of his first serves. Wins over 70% of his first serve points. Nori's just also a machine physically. Just, okay, you know, again... Garon got a little hot in set number two. Sonori went into ball machine mode and said, can you do this for 20 consecutive shots per rally? And Garon could for a set, but he couldn't for two plus hours, which is what it takes to knock off Cam Nori right now. So Nori into another semifinal. You look for Nori, who in terms of semifinals last year, he made six, interestingly. Uh, Delray, Acapulco, Leon, Wimbledon, Los Cabos, Cincinnati. So Six feels a little low for a guy. How many quarters did he make? It had to be more than that, right? He made 11 quarterfinals, went 6-5 and five in his quarterfinal matches last year. So good start to him, the 1-0 and start in the quarters this year into, again, first semifinal of the year uh, for Nori, who, for what it's worth right now, currently sitting at number 12 in the live rankings, of course. He now is going to take on Jensen Brooksby who he's 1-0 in the career head-to-head against. Brooksby, according to my calculations, I know the guy on the broadcast said sixth. I see seventh career semifinal for him at the tour level. And one of them on Tennis Abstract is an ITF result, but that would be eight. So excluding that one, I see seventh for Brooksby, which, by the way, pretty darn good for a guy who really came into our lives, what, 24 months ago, or 23, if you consider February 2021, where his run in South Africa, his real shining, the beginning moment for his shining star. And again, for a 22-year-old who really has only played a year and a half of tour-level play, Brooksby's up, he's made seven semifinals, and he's up to number 39 in the live rankings. That's exactly where you want to be in. Look, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. That's what he did against Quentin Halise, who serve his forehands were the two traditional biggest weapons on the court. But Brooksby's gotten faster. Not only has his first step gotten better, although he's always been great at anticipating, but he's just a little bit more fluid in his recovery, more explosive in his first step. I think his forehand, when he has time, has gotten a little bit heavier, better depth, better pace. I think the first serve has a few extra added miles per hour on it as well. And look, in a match against the big serving Quentin Halise, Brooksby's able to match him serve for serve. And, you know, he gets broken twice against Fonini in a three-set match, twice against Halise in a two-hour six-and-six match. But ultimately, he comes out the winner. Um, and again, that's keeping... He just always keeps the match close. And again, he just puts that added pressure on his opponent because you just are never sure how you're going to put him away. It's death by a thousand paper cuts but it gets the job done. Brooksby, Nori, that's going to be a physical match. Although, again, it's going to be interesting because Nori, you feel like, might even be another level physically. And Nori, according to the Tennis Abstract formula, 71.4% favorite. I'm fascinated to see how Brooksby holds up there. Of course, on the top half of the draws, the Battle of the Frenchman, Constant Lestienne into the semifinals where he will take on, excuse me, Richard Gasquet. Gasquet. Turning back the clock, sorry for using, of course, I had to do it, but sorry for using the cliche. Turning back the clock, vintage tennis in sets two and three. He was striking the backhand beautifully, one six six one six one over Gofen. Lestien got into his bag of tricks. Two six seven six six five uh seven six seven five excuse me he escapes against Lazlo Jura what a rise it's been for Lestien who currently sits at a new career high of number fifty three at age thirty 
in the live rankings. Hell of a run for the Frenchman. That's your final right now in Auckland, where Nori, 54% favorite. Then you have Gasquet at 16, Brooksby at 15-9, Lestien 13-6. It's going to be fun, folks. Again, it, it, I, I think Nori carries that event. But, uh, again, if, if coming out of this week your winners are Nori, um, and Kennan, RBA, and whomever comes out of Adelaide 2, that's a really good week number two in the 2023 tennis world. So, of course, keep your eye on all of that tour-level action. Of course, the last thing I want to talk about before I let all of you listeners go is the results we saw at the final in the final round excuse me, of Australian Open qualifying. The 16 women's singles draw qualifiers are as follows. Coco Vandeweghe who should just be a top 100. That's what I'm going to do here. I'm just going to interlude commentary a little bit over the ones I feel strongly about. Coco Vandeweghe, the weapons are still real. She looks healthy again. She's serving well. She belongs in the top 100. Good qualifying run for her. Katie Volleynets, same coach growing up as Jensen Brooksby. She puts a million balls in play, even if the weapons aren't extreme. But boy, do the Brooksby and Volleynets with backhands look awfully similar. Keep your eye on Katie Volleynets. Brenda Fruvertova, I mean, all the Fruvertovas do is keep themselves alive in the goat race. Brenda qualifying ridiculous from the teenager. Diane Schneider, the alleged incoming freshman for NC State, on the precipice of the top 100. She doesn't drop a set on her way to qualifying for the main draw in Australia. You get that sort of prize money. I just don't know how you turn it down and don't go pro from there, especially when you're right on the precipice of being top 100 anyways. So just an added dimension to that. 16-year-old young Czech, uh, Bejlik, Bejlik, I forget how to pronounce it, but she's been outstanding. Select Mateva, who won a couple of junior double slams. She qualifies in singles. Keep your eye out on her. The 19-year-old's impressive. Shmidlova, Bukska, uh, Tsarenko, Burrell, Stefanini, all veterans who end up qualifying. Sabov, Janet Chievich, uh, a couple of players as well. Hartono, the former NCAA singles champ at Ole Miss, she qualifies. You also have Lise and uh, Kudermitova qualifying on the women's side. On the men's side, shout out to the USC Trojans. Brandon Holt, Yannick Honefman qualifying for the main draw. You also had Ernesto Escobedo, now representing Mexico, qualifying as well. Alex Vukic, uh, the former Illini All-American, shout out to him on qualifying. Nicolas Iari, big serve, big forehand. They also belong in the top 100. He qualifies. Jan Leonard Struff, same deal, qualifier. Locally, Purcell, Watanuki, Kruciek, Sue, Servsina, Kosaud, Bellucci, Zizu Bergs, and then, of course, still live in the GOAT race qualifying, I believe, for the first time, uh, and not with via wildcard, Jerry Shang into the main draw in Australia as he gets through as well. I know the draws are out. I know the qualifiers may have even been placed at this point, but we're going to save that for the Great Shot podcast feed where we are previewing all aspects of the 2023 Australian Open. We'll have unique broad draw bra. I was going to say draw breakdowns, broad breakdowns is what that was going to turn into. Draw breakdowns for each of the men's and women's singles draws over on that feed. Of course, we'll have plenty of other preview content there as well. That said, we're going to continue to monitor all the week two action here on this show. All of this content available wherever you listen to your podcast or on our website, crackedrackets.com. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who I'm not going to swear, but you know the job that he does day in, day out. With all of that said, shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. 
gmail.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for the fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Correct Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.